You're gonna have to take that towel off your head. If not, this isn't gonna work. I'm Martina Svanovic. Welcome to the Larparati podcast, broadcast to you from the elsewhere and the elsewhen. Voices today originate from Helsinki, Finland, Oslo, Norway, and London, England. My co-host is Simon Brind. We're joined today by James Lorian McDonnell, a Finnish-Canadian stand-up comedian and performance artist. He's been working on the crossover between LARP, theater, and performance for over a decade. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Most sand is only 5,000 years old, and very little new sand reaches the coast from the continental interior as it once did. But that doesn't mean you should settle for inferior modern sand when just down the road you can find organic, traditional ray sand with no artificial flavorings or colorings. That's why I always go to Pembleton's for all my aggregate needs. There is a city at the end of the world. It is the place where forgotten things are left forever. This is where dragons sleep and dream and become the mountains that are eventually worn away to sand. Pembleton's House of Sand, because your memories are eternal. So, James, have you ever been panning for gold? (laughs) Uh, Have I ever been panning for gold? No, although it sounds like a very similar process to what I would say, like writing advertisements and jingles such as the for listened to. Does that mean you've written jingles? And oh, yeah, I used to work in advertising. And that was kind of like what the process was sort of like. You have a whole bunch of muck you're trying to get through and you hope that you find something shiny that everybody wants. Amazing. There's like a lot of stuff that I don't know about you because I only know that you are a LARPer, a theater performer and a stand-up comedian. But I didn't know you also did ad reading. Tell us more about yourself. Well, so I'm I'm from the 70s, which already uh, makes me <laughs> uncool in the eyes of appropriate minors. I know I grew up in Canada and then went to university. I studied English literature and biology and theater. And then I thought, I'm going to get a job at McDonald's. So what am I going to do that's not that? And my mom said, my mom is Finnish. And so she said, you know, why don't you go to Finland for a year and just like hang out? So I did that in 2002 and uh, have not left. I failed to leave. (laughs) And uh, since then, I've been working in alternative theater, physical theater. I had uh, some jobs in advertising and copywriting. I've since kind of gravitated away from theater into performance art and then got a little bit burned out on performance art and got kind of attracted to LARP around the same time as I got attracted to stand-up comedy. So I've, uh, I'm now like a professional stand-up comedian, but also with like one foot really heavily in performance art and a third foot. Uh, I don't know where these feet are coming from. And the third foot is in, is in LARP. So I've, I've been working in theater and performance and other different modes of performance a lot. And then the other thing that always comes up about me is uh, that I'm a, a transgender uh, guy, so that has like that has been contributing to the sort of stuff that I do and the sort of conversations I have, and also it's been giving me the opportunities that I've been able to get. So, uh, so a lot of what I've been doing has been shaped by that as well. 
in LARP as well or more in performance? Oh, that's an interesting question. In terms of working in performance and working in theater, a lot of the times when people have asked me to do something is because I have this particular viewpoint and so they want to like hire me or give me uh, get me at their festival or something like that because I have a particular viewpoint. I would say that being trans has affected me in my performance work. But in terms of LARP, LARP is more like a zone where I can, if I want to, I can play around with these things. It's a little bit like many, many times I've used it as a gendered testing ground to find things that I like and to kind of import them into my real life. Although I would say that in the last few years, that kind of has had diminishing returns because I'm really sick of the fact that everything is a trying ground and I just I just want to relax and I don't know just I, I just want to be Cruella de Vil or something like that uncomplicated and and, and awful <laughs> nice. okay so how did you discover LARP well the first time I played anything I think I was like 17 and a friend of mine had the Vampire the Masquerade books so I played a couple evenings with some friends and it was weird like I was not good at understanding what was going on and we had like all these little bits of cardboard that represented like spells and things and weapons and things that you could do to other people and then there was a lot of like rock paper scissors to determine the outcome of things but of course like we're all like teenagers and this is like you know early 90s so we don't know what we're doing and of course the idea of like playing to win was so heavy in it that we weren't really that good at storytelling i found it more like an experience of like who was popular and who allowed who to be in on their big secret and on in on their like plot to overthrow this other person and it didn't feel like very collective storytelling it felt a little bit more like oppressive sort of (laughs) social nerdery and so i didn't play a lot of that after that but then when i was working in experimental theater my friend arne korpala uh, who's also a theater artist in Finland and with whom I've done a lot of uh, a lot of LARP adjacent theater works. He actually, I think, went to a game done by Johanna Pettersson, Muovikuppi, the plastic cup. I think there's even like cups that you can like smash at some point, and it's a game mechanic. It's a very small LARP. So he went to that game and he thought that was super interesting. And I had also been recently to see a performance by the Danish group Signe in Copenhagen. And I had been blown away by what they were doing because it was very environmental, very game-based and immersive and very kind of free-floating in a way. I was super interested in how that piece immersed me into an environment. So when Arne talked about the plastic cup... And I talked about Signa. We both thought, hey, why don't we combine forces and try to do something LARPy? And so the first thing we did was go to Knutpunkt. That nice. was what, yeah, that was what was available for to us. So we thought we heard, oh, there's this, uh, there's this conference where they talk about stuff. Like that's where we can learn things. So we just went to Knutpunkt, and neither of us survived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how was that coming to Knutpunkt with no preconceptions of LARP? It was amazing. Also, because coming from a theater background, I really had a notion of LARPers as bad actors and of LARP as just being like a particular strand 
of embarrassing amateur dramatic theater. And while this attitude was, you know, not really in the long run the kind of attitude I want to hang on to, in the short term, it made me confident. <laughs> so I, when I came to Knutpunkt, I felt like I can talk to anyone and I can, because I wasn't feeling a lot of social pressure, which is a terrible thing to say, but it's really true. And it also didn't help that like on the first night, because I, because we had come there from theater and we were some of the first, if not the first people to specifically come from the theater to KP to, to kind of figure out what was going on. But then we ran our, we test ran our, our project there and it was so cool because people did not respond the way we expected them to. We come from a theater background. We expect that if we don't tell people specifically what they can do, that they won't do anything extra. But LARPers will take everything as a suggestion to run with it as best as they can see what makes it interesting. And that's a massive difference between a typical theater audience and a typical LARP audience. And then when you get like these environmental theater audiences like punch drunk audiences they're sort of halfway in between but they're trained also for a very specific reaction so we were kind of blown away by the possibility of what this audience could be like instead of like a a, a typical theater audience and the second thing i definitely remember is that the dance floor was incredible it was the wildest, wildest, most fun dance floor I had experienced for years and years and years. And immediately I was like, I, I, these are my people. just want to wind back to something you said about the audiences and particularly the, the LARP audiences. I think you implied somewhere there was a linear scale between agency and playability in theater LARP hybrids. And I'm going to quote you here. There's a stop start feel to the playability because the sandbox sections don't actually have any effect on the scripted scenes. So can you talk a little bit about sort of hybrid LARP adjacent theater that's gone some way to actually cracking this? It, it's true that, that that description definitely implied a linearity that I I would not necessarily say is is going to always pan out to be the truth. What I worked on for a while in performance art is this idea that the mode of performance is something that an audience knows and recognizes or has to learn. And that the the, the way that the, the cues that make the audience respond in the way that they respond are a massive part of the design of the entire work. So, you know, when you get a theater and you see the red seats, you go and you sit down and you you already feel like comfortably ensconced in this plushy chair and you're going to take something in and it could be super enjoyable when you go to a gallery you see the white walls uh everything's echoing and bouncing off the space if you're watching a performance everybody goes to the boundaries of the space they go to the walls they sit down they slide down the wall they sit down they look at each other while they're looking at the performance they're you know thinking about what it all means it's very bohemian (laughs) but they you see the white walls you see the performance art you know how to behave then when when we get into these hybrid pieces environmental theater these uh, site-specific theater pieces of course have been going on since like the 60s and 70s and even more popular more like in the 80s and 90s until they have I think reached something a little bit more sophisticated with with companies like Punch Drunk in the UK that these audiences are also trained over a series of performances to understand what are the rules of engagement. 
So when you go to your first punch drunk performance, you might be kind of blown away by the fact that you aren't sitting in a chair or that you get to talk to people, you get to move around, you get to sort of be a part of it. And you are going to take your cues a lot from other audience members. So you have this herd competence of how does the audience behave in, in this situation. And then you also have the outliers, who are the people who figure that anything goes. And uh, so they are the ones who are going to like burst into scenes that they're not supposed to. And, and they're going to start talking when they're not supposed to talk. Or they will even you know manhandle the actors because they think that's okay. And all of those are kind of processes of establishing a context by where you can take in the performance. What I tried to do in my first master's thesis work, which, which it wasn't great, but boy, was it interesting, was this four-hour piece with four sections in it. And the first section was completely in utter darkness. And it was only a sensory it was a labyrinth built inside a, uh, a huge theater space. You were given a, a string. You were like Ariadne, like the, uh, Theseus and the, and the Minotaur kind of thing. So you had a string that would take you around the labyrinth, and you had to follow your, your string through the darkness. The second phase had myself and three other performers in the space playing characters and doing these kind of uh, more like performance art installation actions. It was something to look at. The third part we broke that down and, and introduced uh, a game element, like a LARP element, where you were going after particular tokens or particular stories. You were trying to figure out what happened to something. And then the fourth part was a ritual where, again, we closed off the sandboxy nature of it and the outcome of the story resulted in the Minotaur being sacrificing somebody, etc., the point that I tried to do in that whole piece was to do radical shifts, like very sudden and radical shifts from one mode of performance to another to see how the audience would respond to this. Turns out they don't respond very well to this. <laughs> it's like, it's very difficult because I gave them one mode of performance and then busted that so I could try to get them involved in the second one and then busted that one and tried to get them to do something else. And I discovered through that piece that the transparency that I did not provide them was not actually, uh, it didn't help. It would have been better if I'd even like kind of given many, many more instructions and many, many more expectations about how to manage the flow from one to another instead of that kind of performance, that young performance artist thing where you put people in situations without them knowing that they're in the situation so they can react authentically. Well, I, I think that dissonance is is actually really interesting. That you, you're talking about sort of busting up people from one mode to another and them not responding well to it. Early punch drunk. So I'm thinking back to Faust here. I went to a preview of that. There wasn't herd competence. We were all absolutely bloody terrified. I was thrown out of a lift onto the fifth floor of an abandoned building alone at the start of the production and wandered off into the dark. <laughs> that sounds um, amazing. <laughs> it, it was. It, 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 you know, it, it, it's a high that I've chased with every Punch Drunk production from that point on. But nobody knew what they were doing. And that dissonance was 
it was interesting. I think there was there was something there that, as an audience member, perhaps it made me feel more like a participant because I was alone and I was exposed and I did not know what was going on. Mm-hmm. I think there is something there when when the people around you have more information than you do. Because like if you're in a, if you're in a conventional theater play, you're not expected to do anything, and that's very comfortable because you don't know what's going on. You're there to to see what happens, and then when you get into these more interactive pieces, the, you have to manage the somehow the question of what can I contribute, and what do I know, and what do they want me to do. And like, what, what, what is valuable about what I can ask or know, or like, am I supposed to just find things out here or am I supposed to contribute in some way? A lot of these performances have got a lot better over the years at understanding how to onboard participants. But I also think the participants have learned a lot of how to be in this performance. So I don't think it's the creators who are necessarily doing all the work in making these performances really work. But this is a problem, isn't it? If I turn up and I know what I know what I'm doing as a as an audience member, as a participant, mm-hmm. that could very easily conflict with your artistic vision. Definitely, we. I made so many of these like pieces where uh, it was super important to me that people behave in a particular way, and then they just did the complete opposite because I made it uh, without realizing it. I had made it interesting to do something different, and. Uh, I think in you know this this is well known to LARP designers that your your players are going to break your design if they are going to get more out of breaking it than following what you have laid out. Even being able to anticipate this and acknowledge this and say like you would you will you will want to start a revolution at this point. Please do not start a revolution. That's that's all you need to say at that moment. But I I think a lot of this is sort of happening kind of implicitly in the theater world, whereas it's very, very on the table of discussion in, in, in LARP. You talk about herd competence, and I, I think at least for like national or area-based LARP groups, that sort of herd competence was all you needed for a while. When I started out LARPing, we didn't do a lot of workshops. We didn't have transparent designs. We didn't t- try to teach the players how to play the LARP. We were doing because we all just instinctively thought that it was just working because it was just perfect like it is right but it just turns out it's because there's always at least 60 percent of the people here have done exactly this before yeah do you think they're going to start doing that kind of workshop design for performances as well or do you think it's just a different genre and that kind of onboarding wouldn't work with theater audiences even if they're moving into more of a punch drunk well, that has a there's a lot of interesting components to that question. One of them really is the economic side of it, which is the people who go to a theater piece, um, they expect to buy a ticket and go experience the piece, and they they're not paying time wise or money wise to do more than that. You generally would not have workshops before a a, a, a performance or a, of a theater piece of that kind. Not to say that it is impossible. But at the same time, you can sort of say that it has been happening in a kind of quiet way. Uh, for instance, the last time I went to see a punch drunk show, it was The Drowned Man. And I went with some friends of mine. I, my first time seeing it, their fourth time seeing it. 
And also what had happened with that performance was that there was like this really thriving online community of people who would go to see the show multiple times and report everything that happened to them and everything that was said because they wanted collectively to kind of piece together the story and figure out what exactly happens. And what that that essentially was herd competence because I kind of ended up avoiding other audience members because if it had been a different day, maybe I would have been in the mood to learn their ways. But I came in there thinking, what is LARPy about this? And it, it the, the herd competence was a completely different herd. And I was like, no, I'm going to be this lone sheep over here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this thing. So I was unable to get into the piece in my own way because of the herd competence that was established. So I think that generally you're not going to have people doing doing the work. And also because anybody can buy a ticket. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter like who you are, your age, your your gender, your skin color. You can buy a ticket to a show. But when you are being workshopped, when you are contributing to a piece, I think your own identity, actually, and your own ability to work with others your familiarity with them, your your ability to become one of the herd is definitely at play. Whether that's because the herd is really different from you and you don't seem to fit in, or whether because you just have difficulties kind of, you know, fitting in with them no matter how much you try, or maybe the herd is all full of people who are just fundamentally like different from you in an identity way, like they're all they're all straight people and you're queer and you're just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> So this, I think, works as a nice segue into talking a little bit about your research. You're going to be looking at uh, a minority performer's relationship to ambiguity, deniability, and hostility in comedy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And and provide some context for those three terms, because they might be very exciting. Well, let's see where we get with this, because I'm in the beginning phases of, of working on a PhD. I mean, beginning as in I have not even been accepted to the program yet, so... So I do stand-up comedy, and I'm a transgender comedian. And comedy, as we all know, is people getting up in front of a microphone and talking to make other people laugh. And it's also a non-serious form of communication. You're allowed to say things that you don't mean in order to make people laugh, or you can say something that you don't mean in order to make the opposite point. You can use sarcasm to say something literally that you, that by affect you know means the opposite. So ambiguity is baked into stand-up comedy. And part of the joy of being at a show is that in, a lot of comedy is, is these sort of um, verbal and social puzzles that we're kind of figuring out. You know, a, a puns work this way. We, I don't know why, but we're delighted when something means one thing and also means another thing simultaneously. They want to hear this. You want to hear a stupid joke? I love this joke. Ready? Okay. What do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. <laughs> oh, you got to see their face. It's great. <laughs> so, I mean, it's stupid. It's awful. But it's why is it, why is that delightful? Why are we into that? Uh, what is happening in our brains that makes this whole thing, this this whole process of laughter happen? So I'm, I want to look at the, these questions of 
what what is ambiguous in in comedy. Now at the same time, we also have a lot of things such as satire and mockery, and these are big political tools. Frequently, they've been used as tools of oppression, but also they're used as tools of resistance. But just because, like you know, if if I make jokes that are really uh, cruel and nasty about Donald Trump, it doesn't make the jokes not cruel and nasty just because they're resistance, just because I feel justified in them. There's still hostility there. And this relates to what what Jaco Senros also writes about in his, his PhD, which he also draws on the work of others talking about dark play and transgressive play, um, the idea that bullying is maybe one-sided play, but it's still play. And then, so to combine this this idea of ambiguity, that maybe I say what I mean, maybe I don't, and hostility, and then you get to the idea of deniability, which, which is that I said this thing, but I didn't actually mean it, so I wasn't actually offensive. And how does that work for somebody who is just, you know, what I would call like a right-wing grifter who is just looking to get all the clicks. How does that work differently from somebody who is an activist, who is working towards the, the liberation of, of themselves and people who are like them? And I'm interested in these these questions of, of how can we play between these and how am I, do I even have as a, as a like as a transgender comedian, do I even have equal access to hostility and ambiguity, do I have to be clear so that I don't reflect badly on my community, for instance? These are the kinds of questions that I'm, I'm playing with. And I think a lot of those are very applicable to LARP when we, when we deal with identity and when we deal with very um, nasty, uh, abusive characters, etc. Deniability, particularly here. So there are some comedians I've seen who appear to be playing a character on stage. Al Murray is the obvious one. Right the, the barman. Um, the barman, yeah. The, yeah, the, the, the pub, pub the, oh, I, love, I love that character so much. Stuart, Stuart Lee. Lee. Yeah. Stuart Lee, yeah. <laughs> I adore Stuart Lee so much. But, yeah. that, but the character of Stuart Lee is a clown. Is he LARPing? Is there any kind of LARP adjacency we can find in here? Or am I desperately scrabbling for a link? So when you're talking about like deniability, are you sort of saying like that um, alibi? I'm wondering if there is a an intersection here. I'm interested in that. I think that's a nice beginning sentence. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, definitely, if you add a character, you add some alibi to yourself, if nothing else, right? Like this isn't the real me. I'm someone else when I'm on stage. Absolutely. And I've met many, many comedians who are, and I will like, I will have to like do the thing and say that a lot of them tend to be white, straight, cis men who are uh, young men who are comedians who, who have a very coarse and very shocking kind of style. And it's a character. And then I will, you know, we'll talk about them and somebody will say like, you know, oh, I, I, I thought you were a jackass and a, a total asshole, but actually you're a nice person. And then they will talk to me and say, like, why did that person think I was an asshole? Like, why would they do that? I'm like, they've only seen you on stage. They have no other context for that. And they're like, yeah, but that's an act. I'm like, yeah, but even if we know it's an act, we have nothing else to go on. And we 
we don't. We don't give you the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Unless you show yourself in some other context, we don't do that at all. I've seen your stand-up. I've seen one of your stand-up shows. And you appeared to be you. I hear this from many people. <laughs> I don't really know how to do it without being me. But also, maybe that also comes from kind of a theater background. When you study clown, for instance, when you, when you put on the nose, you are the clown. That is it. When you take off the nose, you're yourself. When you put on the nose, you are the clown. The clown is not really a character. The clown is a state of being. It's naive. It, it is, it, it's curious. It's exploratory. It has no limits, etc. kind of thing. One of my favorite exercises that everybody hates, everybody hates, and there's a reason why everybody hates it, because it's, it's impossible and humiliating and terrible, and you never want to do it. But there's an exercise in Clown called Everything's Funny. And that, and so we, would, we had this exercise in theater school to get out of our own heads, because everybody pre-plans what they want to do. And like, how am I going to do, what am I going to do that's funny? Oh, I know, or I'll, I'll go over to the window and I'll lick it. And then you think about that for 20 minutes. And then you go, it's your time to go on stage and you go and lick the window and nobody laughs because it's stupid. <laughs> and then, so we have this, we, so this, um, this exercise is a way of getting out of your, out of your head. And the way it is, is that you, you have the nose, you come into the space and you are not allowed to pre-plan anything, but everything is funny. That's the rule. Everything is funny. And when it works, you'll never see anything funnier in your life. You just you will fall violently in love with the people who are doing the exercise because they are hysterically funny and so raw and so open and so present. It's really beautiful. And I think probably that kind of exercise is what has spilled over to my comedy where what I'm looking to do is be be open and true to myself as much as possible. Because the funny thing is, the more naked you show yourself, the more uh, armor you seem to have. Why is that? <laughs> I don't know. There's something about vulnerability that people like. I, I don't know what it is. I often hear, like, you're, you're very honest on stage, you're very vulnerable on stage, you're very real, you're very you, and then they're like, you're really brave. And I'm like, I don't know why that is the same thing. I don't know, it's a sense of kind of free fall, if you can get it right. And it, it, it does actually feel very good because it doesn't feel like you're out of control. Does it originate from the act of performance? So would it be there if there was no audience? Ooh, good question. I think you can get that state without an audience there because that's a very childish kind of play, unconscious play kind of moment, unself-conscious play. But when you put an audience in there and you allow yourself to be looked at in that way, then you introduce power into the mix. And it's like a, like a social power and desirability. Even though you're the clown, people are like, oh, I want to be that free. So do you think there's like limits to the type of stand-up comedian role you can take on as a queer, trans, sort of form of minority stand-up comedian? Are, are white, cisgendered men freer to be stand-up comedians? I think in some ways I have a lot more freedom, and it's other ways I have a lot less. Because I'm already sort of crazy and abject according to like the very normative mindset. I'm already nuts, so I might as well just prove it by going all in with that. But when it comes to to like 
representation, then this becomes actually a very, very limiting because I feel like I have less room to make mistakes. And I've also had this conversation like with uh, a lot of my friends who are comedians who are like, like Somali uh, and Iranian. Uh, they don't get to make mistakes. And so their attitude then has to, they have to either develop this kind of backbone where they will just take a whole bunch of criticism and a whole bunch of people hating them and they just have to choose who they want hating them do they want to be hated by their own in-group or do they want to be hated by the people outside their in-group what's important i I dabbled with trying to be funny when i was younger and i've given up on it Um, never never give up never give up but I, i think part of why is i had a conversation with another like stand-up comedian friend of mine about it and why she also gave up and is now driving trams to Russell instead. Hmm. And and it is like there seems to be like a women aren't funny bias at the start there. And then if you're a woman comedian, you're only talking about women's stuff. And if you try to go any step outside of any of those boundaries, I think it's different now, right? This was early 2000s and now we're in 2020. So the world has moved on a little bit, but it's still a feeling like if you see a lineup of stand-up comedians, it's going to be like nine guys and a woman or nine white folks and one person of color, right? So, so you're still, you're always the odd one out. Yeah, and that has changed an awful lot. In, in ways like the Helsinki scene is actually kind of amazing because, well, and I have to do a small amount of horn tooting, but... I think it was 2015 I started the Helsinki Feminist Comedy Night. And now we've got like another feminist open mic. I was, when I started, the only openly queer comedian that I knew of in the country. And now we can have like an entire night of just trans comedians. Uh, and there's uh, All Female Panel, which is a fantastically, fantastically popular show that sells out everywhere. They've got, you know, they've got media deals. So I bas- basically this is... And when I started, I was being introduced, like, you know, they would say, like, our next comedian is a woman. <laughs> you just be like, I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's almost like it's almost like the same way of introducing, like, any other guy comedian. Like, this next comedian is a friend of mine. Uh, he's a woman. Uh, it's just, you know, just kind of work in that sort of way. That has moved really, really fast. But it, it also has taken it, its herd competence again. Because you have not only the comedians who are going out there and they have spaces then to, to you know, some people have gone out and forged the space that, um, and they've listened to all like the bullshit and all the people saying they can't do it. And they've said, screw that. And then they've made more space for other people to try it and to keep going. And then the audiences have come along and going like, oh, I actually like this stuff. And it's, again, it's like it. I I never saw, for instance, Feminist Comedy Night as this project where I and a bunch of comedians talk about feminist stuff. I saw it as a um, dialogue between comedians and, and the audience to discover what is feminist humor. Because the audience has a part in that as well. That sounds amazing. Is it all in Finnish? Or can we like come visit? I host in English because my Finnish is so bad. So it's like half and half. And we should have occasionally Swedish acts, but... I don't have Swedish acts yet. So, comedy and LARP, is it possible or should we leave it to the professionals? 
Oh, oh God, it's going to be so painful. <laughs> oh, what a what a horrible! I love this question because I have very strong instincts about it, which are that comedies work. I mean, I would say like you know, um, LARP and costume design. Uh, do you leave it to the professionals? Well, you know, plenty of people in LARP are easily at the professional level of costume design. So it's not a matter of like, can it be done in LARP? But in order to in order to democratize the production of comedy, as in people being funny, it's so scary and it's so daunting for so many people. And it's it has such a big failure mode, which... So basically, it, you just need a very, very robust setting and a very robust structure so that it can be as inclusive as possible for people to people to take part. I don't know, like, could you put stand-up in, in a LARP? Absolutely. <laughs> that would be kind of wild and crazy. But then you kind of have to make a decision. Are the, are the people who are supposed to be funny, are they, are they definitely funny? And are we just going to play that they're funny no matter what they say? Or are we going to go, you know, indexical with the audience reactions and live with this constant fear of, of uh, dying on stage and not being that good? Because, you know, every every comedian does have phases where they're just, they, they're not able to quite hit the sweet spot and they're not figuring it out. So any, you know, if you're supposed to be playing a professional comedian who's really, really good, maybe you're just hitting hard times. Okay, that's, uh, that's possible. But I don't know how else, like, aside from putting, like, just stand up on a stage, like, what other kinds of comedy and LARP would you be thinking of? I, I'm wondering whether the everything is funny could be a meta technique. Ooh, ooh, that's lovely. But why? <laughs> What would funny? What would if there's no audience? Who's comedy for? This is a really interesting topic to me because I think in Norway, farce is a really normal LARP genre. Like every year, there's at least three or four farcical LARPs that are set up. It'll be like it's a romantic comedy set in the 17th century, and and the the tagline will be that this is a farcical LARP, uh, so- or you do a Woodhouse. LARP, where everyone plays a little bit over the top, and if someone goes down on one knee to pick something up, someone else will pretend like, "Oh yes, of course, I will marry you." Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's and and in those LARPs, the comedy is for each other. Right? Every every participant is sort of playing each other up to make that sort of feel good farce. That is super super interesting. It seems a little bit like combining LARP with improv. Which I also feel is really not discussed enough, and it's not like LARPers could practice a lot of improv, really, a lot more. If there's so much going on in improv that is useful, but I think it's also interesting that a lot of these, like a lot of these farces, they require uh, literacy with the genre. So, like if you would say, like there's a Pride and Prejudice LARP that is a, a farce, I would absolutely know what to do. I can play. There's a dozen characters I can already play in my head, absolutely. Um, because, you know, with, with Pride and Prejudice, they're already over the top if you know what you're looking at, if you know how to read that. And I can imagine, like, you know, doing um, a space ex- exploration LARP where it's kind of like, it, it's Star Trek but farce. Absolutely, we could do that. But it's it's weird to think, like, that in a way as well, because like, when, you're, when you're performing comedy, you don't necessarily get to laugh at it. 
Then you have to take it to the off-game room, where everybody goes to the off-game room and bursts into hysterics and pees their pants because you did th- you did this and she said that and then they did this and oh my god and uh, it presents a very interesting time frame for experience of what comedy is. Do you think the fact that you started in acting and performance does it influence how you approach LARP and play? Yeah, completely. I was worked through a lot of the hang-ups that I notice a lot of a lot of other LARPers have, which is stuff like, oh, I don't like my voice. Oh, I don't like my body. I don't like the way I move. I don't like the way I talk. I'm not creative. I can't do this. Being trained in the stage, of course, you have these anxieties, uh, but you are working with them often enough that you kind of learn to make friends with these possibilities that you have in your body as opposed to just the free-floating anxiety and and also like when i make a character i have several ways of doing it i can start with a physical basis i can start with a psychological and 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 uh and story-based uh kind of approach i can you know drop all character and only focus on action i have ways of conceptualizing making a character that don't just involve i'm a character and here i go that does not always make it more fun, <laughs> but uh, it means that like I'm able to see what people, how people are creating characters, and what their sort of tool set is, and I have just a, a vocabulary for thinking about it. And also, uh, something that does definitely happen in in theater training is that in, in theater, it's extremely important how you look. And I don't mean that like you have to be good looking. That's just a 20th century problem, but how you look communicates your character and how you talk and what you do communicates your character. So you're, you're very focused on the externalization of this character because it's not about how you feel. It's about how the audience is able to receive the character. So I also notice a lot of, like a lot of people when they're beginning LARP, they, they're very into the internal world of the character, but they don't know that it doesn't show on the outside. So we don't, we don't know what you're feeling Uh, what your character's feeling and we aren't reading your character as as a young person or an old person because the the body is not selling us that idea and just if you have skills in that in in putting your attention in that it just makes your characters look a bit more robust how does that affect immersion if you're focused on how you talk how you move rather than what you're feeling does that mean you're more of a performer not necessarily in larp is nice for me as a performer because i get to like dive a little bit deeper into just the emotional landscape sometimes which is very very nice um and the thing is like the way the way that you usually find a performance is through rehearsals right and in these rehearsals rehearsals are way more like larp than the finished performance because in the rehearsals you are you are trying to really get into the emotional landscape and the inner world so you can figure out how this character would best and most interestingly tell this story. So you're playing with emotions all over the place and people get messy and they're crying and they're like, you know, they've, they've got bleed all over the place. And and it's a, it's a much more interesting process and much more beautiful process. The rehearsal process is then, to me, than, than the finished work. I'm much more interested in the rehearsal. And I think a lot of actors w- would also like talk about something similar, is that you, you don't 
really want to get into this kind of uh, trance state where you are not aware of your surroundings, but you are very focused internally on what's happening to you emotionally. That happens, that's a bit more ritualistic, and it's something that is in theater, but it's not like, it, it's not what you want in a performance. You have this kind of furnace of emotions, and the emotions feed into your actions and then your actions also feed into your emotions and then you kind of have a, an ability to sort of ride a wave that takes you along with it and you're sort of riding between being more and less in control of it and more and less inspired by it but you just get used to it i think this is the same with with a lot of larpers you get used to the feeling of being in character and how to kind of ride that wave of play We've we, we've covered a lot here. I think we've scratched a lot. Yeah, of it was wild. <laughs> uh, and there is more to unpack, but we are out of time. Before we close up, though, Jamie, do you have anything you want to plug? <laughs> <laughs> well, because performances are butt right now, I am working on a, a new show that'll premiere in May of next year, and I hope it will... It's called Cuck, A Cure for Social Media, and it's, it is about hostility and social media and mockery, and it's a stand-up show itself. I've gone and given myself something really difficult to do. And I'm also running, because it's, you know, we don't get to see each other that much, I'm running with Jaco Stenros, um, the Knudipedia pub quiz, the virtual pub quiz. We did one, and it was super fun. The next one is on November 15th, that's a Sunday. And we we're, we're going to keep doing them while they're fun. They're over Zoom, and uh, we get together a bunch of obscure and silly questions about LARP and uh, hopefully make it as inclusive and silly as possible where the points are absolutely meaningless. You say that, but we came in second last mm -hmm. time. First among <laughs> losers. By, by, by one third of one point. So. <laughs> It was great fun. It was super fun. I can't wait to do it again. But that's, yeah, it's called Knutopedia, and uh, you can find the 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 group on, on Facebook or from an invite from somebody in the Nordic LARP scene. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Thank it's you, Katz. I had such a nice time, and you covered, like, everything that's been in my head in the last six months, so well done. <laughs> Well, this was fun. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.